Hi, I'm Moon Unit Zappa, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. July of 1979, hot and muggy in Chicago, a typical summer in Sandberg's City of the Big Shoulders. The Chicago White Sox were mired in yet another long losing season. Not much to root for at Comiskey Park. Their best everyday player was Chet Lemon, a 300 hitting center fielder, fleet of foot with a slick glove. Chet was having the best season of his solid 16 year career, but alas, it was wasted. The rest of the Southsiders roster was has-beens and never-would-bees. Getting bots into seats at said park for another uninspiring losing season was the job of Mike Veck, White Sox head of promotions. It wasn't going well. <laughs> the place wasn't even half full most games. But in just a few weeks... Comiskey Park would host a couple of big rock concerts. August 5th was a day-long festival headlined by Journey. On the 19th, Rush was coming to town. Visions of 55,000 boisterous fans rocking Comiskey danced in Mike's head. A rock music-themed promotion at Comiskey Park, a few weeks ahead of the upcoming show, seemed like a thing to do. Mike Veck needed a win, and the White Sox weren't providing any. An early season game with the Detroit Tigers got rained out, so to make up the date, a twi-night doubleheader was scheduled for July 12th. Mike picked up the phone. New Year's Day, 1979, Steve Dahl was out of a job. WDAI in Chicago, 94.7 FM, abruptly changed formats from rock to disco in mid-song at the stroke of midnight. The following morning, they cut Steve loose. Steve was 25 at the time, a California transplant who had found success on the Midwest airwaves. First in Detroit, then in early 78, WDAI gave him a substantial raise and the coveted morning drive time slot. The show was Steve Dahl's rude awakening. Steve was an early adopter of the shock jock style. Steve had it down. Coarse humor, rat-a-tat, stream of consciousness, banter with the news and the weather guy, goofy skits and songs, prank phone calls, doing the Wednesday hump day show live from the camel pen at the zoo. <laughs> it played well in Detroit, but it didn't really catch fire in Chicago. Probably not Steve's fault. There just wasn't much headroom for another FM rock station in 1978 Chicago. Disco ruled the airwaves, so management decided to do the hustle and switch formats from Chicago's best rock to disco DAI. Steve landed on his feet, 
By spring, he was the morning guy at Crosstown rival WLUP. The Loop was the big hitter in the rock radio market in Chicago, and Steve used his platform to roast his former employers and rail against disco in general. At The Loop, Steve Dahl developed a regular shtick where he would play a few seconds of a disco song, then a needle scratch, followed by an explosion. Mike Beck and Steve Dahl brainstormed the Disco Demolition Night to take place between games of the doubleheader at Comiskey on July 12th. Bringing a disco record and a general admission ticket was 98 cents, a discount beer too. The records collected at the gate would go in a giant bin that would be carted out to the middle of the field between games and blown up. They had an explosive expert on hand in everything. It was not a unique promotion. Other rock DJs around the country were holding death-to-disco events and the like. A few rowdy listeners would show up, maybe a couple of hundred if it went really well, and they would all chant slogans and whoop a little bit. The station and White Sox management figured they might get a few thousand extra bodies in the park for a meaningless pair of games between two teams that were going nowhere. Steve Dahl flogged the event all week on his morning show. A twilight doubleheader typically starts about 4 p.m. local time. The first game, Detroit took it 4-1, to lasted 2 hours and 38 minutes according to the published box score. Also according to the box score, 47,935 in attendance. All through the first game, the rowdy crowd filtered in. By intermission, Comiskey was packed and the beer was flowing. Thousands more milled around outside. They'd pulled it off. The promotion was a massive success. Until it wasn't. A half-hour break between games is customary, just enough time for the players to take a shower and put on fresh uniforms. So even as players trotted off the field, the ground crew pushed the bin out to center field while Steve Dahl rolled out in an old army jeep dressed in military uniform, complete with a patent helmet. Disco sucks! Disco sucks! Disco sucks! July 12th, 1979. A twinite doubleheader at Comiskey Park. The White Sox versus the Tigers. Between games, 24-year-old Steve Dahl, a popular disc jockey for Chicago rock station Loop 98, would take the field at the head of his so-called anti-disco army to blow up thousands of disco records. Every day I would play a disco record and drag the needle across it, you know, and scratch it and then blow it up. But I tapped into something. There's a, an undercurrent of hatred for disco.
Tropes podcast is intended to be education and commentary. It will discuss adult themes and may use coarse language. Pantheon Podcasts presents Rock and Roll Archaeology with host Christian Swain. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Hey, my diggers, are you not entertained? Well, you will be when we do a little demolition ourselves today. So, how'd you like episode 23, Radio Radio? Um, a bit of a think piece, more substance uh, than style, perhaps. Uh, more prose than poetry. Uh, you know, like we said in the show, um, it's like episode nine, uh, the medium, the message, the music. You know, we do a lot of the music and culture, but, uh, you know, we wanted to highlight more of the technology. And uh, number 23 was one of those type of shows. And we will have others uh, in the future. And uh, by the way, uh, that was just a little over a month ago that we put that out. And here we are with another short for you. I think that's the big news is that, that uh, we think we've found a cadence and a um, an assembly line that we can do both um, the shorts and the big shows. Last year was a lot about getting the shorts going. Um, we were only able to put out one uh, big show last year. We are already deep into the next episode. And I think uh, we're probably going to have that um, fairly soon. So uh, we, we, we won't go a year in between episodes anymore. That I, I think I can promise you. All right. So uh, back to, to episode 23, what we've heard from our radio professional friends around here is that we apparently told a, a pretty good, incredible story. But more importantly, what did you think? Please let us know. Okay, and here is the news. <laughs> we are in the process of recreating our web presences. Um, so what many of you have been with us from the beginning, eight years now, know, uh, the RNRA stuff all became the Pantheon stuff as we built out uh, the network. Uh, it, it was needed. There's no two ways about that. But, you know, we looked back recently and realized that while it was good for Pantheon, it was bad for the RNRA. Um, and so we have new shit, uh, the, our own rock and roll archaeology shit. Um, so first up is our uh, spanking brand new website uh, that you can go to now. It is live. Uh, it's still being worked on, but uh, we, we have now not just Pantheon. You can go to rock and roll archaeology.com for that that's a rock r-o-c-k letter n-r-o-l-l a-r-c-h-a-e-o-l-o-g-y dot com uh, to find the website we're working on updating all of our social media. We we now have a Facebook uh, page up specific for Rock and Roll Archaeology, uh, and you can find that at Rock and Roll Archaeology on Facebook. Twitter is uh, RNRA Pod. I don't know how long we'll stay on Twitter. Um, uh, you know, it's. Uh, yeah, we'll see. Uh, we've jumped into TikTok, uh, and that is under RNRA Podcast. Uh, and uh, we'll be doing more of that. I think TikTok is might be a 
better solution for us than Twitter these days. And we are in the process of ramping up, or, or excuse me, revamping our Patreon page. Uh, and it's still at patreon.com backslash Pantheon Podcasts. We may change the name. Uh, we're in the process of, of putting that together. So stay tuned for that one because uh, we will be creating special content specifically for our patrons. Um, by, by the way, let me call out Keith Van Yick, William Walker, Alan Dugans, Dennis Dare, Anne Van de Heatcamp, Art Bruchet, Benjamin Simon, Malcolm Clark, Amy Crawford, and of course, Devorin Pavlika. Thank you all for sticking with us on Patreon, even though we've been ignoring you. Uh, rest assured, your patience will be rewarded. Yes, we will be adding a Venmo and PayPal uh, buttons as well, you know, like all the kids are doing. So if you feel inspired to help us out with a generous donation, you can do it in a way that suits your needs. All right. Like I said, a complete revamp. Um, we felt we've proven ourselves with some steady content as of late and feel we should expose all of this better than we have been doing. You know, it's time to rebuild some community around the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project um, and make some new friends and spend some more time with the old ones. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right. So today, we're going to do a little hit piece. Well, more like a glancing blow piece, something we have had on our plate for a while, and something that 
fit perfectly with the latest Big Shoe episode, Radio Radio. As you've guessed from the cold open, uh, we're going to dig a little bit into the Steve Dahl-created Disco Demolition Night from July 12th, 1979. We have some things to say about the event and how it didn't age very well. Yeah, it's, it's rather cringy now. So, let's just get right to it. I give you... The Rock and Roll Archaeology short, Disco Demolition. call this song exactly what it is. In recent years, Steve Dahl has made a couple of nods towards contrition about the shit show in Comiskey Park that he facilitated back in 79. We're not entirely convinced. It's the kind of non-apology apology that American politicians have made into an art form over the years. Well, things just got out of hand. Uh, yeah, dude, uh, they sure as fuck did get out of hand. 39 arrests, the field was ruined, and the second game was forfeit. Fortunately, no major injuries. Steve could just own up to his mistake, and he should, but he won't. He's defiant, dug in about it. Uh, that's what we read in his 2019 book titled, What Else? <laughs> Disco Demolition. But we're not here to roast the guy. Much. And even if we are, so what? Steve Dahl is in the Broadcast Hall of Fame. He's a multimillionaire who still has a weekly show on WLS in Chicago. He has a podcast too, just like us. Old Steve will be just fine no matter what we say. To be fair, nothing we've learned about Steve Dahl indicates he's bigoted on a personal level. He's not motivated by that kind of hateful stupidity. From what we can see, he's an okay dude. We are going to zap him for being pretty fucking obtuse, though. Just clueless about the racial and cultural context of the disco demolition before, during, and after the event. This is Alexis Petridis from a Guardian article published on the 40th anniversary of disco demolition. There was something distinctly ugly about the vast crowd of white men publicly destroying music predominantly made by black artists dominated by female stars and with a core audience that was, at least initially, largely gay. That was published in 2019. Some things have happened in America since then. Uh, this is an aside, but worth pointing out. Here in 2023, pulling up video on the net and watching thousands of angry white guys chanting slogans milling around amid smoke and chaos, breaking shit and fighting with cops, well... It hits different now, doesn't it? So why the freak out? Why did white guys in their teens and 20s, and make no mistake, that was the demographic, why did young white guys get so freaked by it and respond to disco with such a visceral hatred? 
In that clip earlier, Steve Dahl said he was tapping into something. Okay, what? We were in that demographic, and we remember it well. Help. We got caught up into it ourselves. Peer pressure and all that other dumb shit. In our defense, we did grow out of it pretty quickly. It was about style and taste, to no small degree, and that's legit. Uh, disco was slick, rock was scruffy, discos were pricey, and they had doormen who only let in the pretty people. Rock, especially punk rock, which we loved the most at that time, felt more inclusive. It was kind of the next chapter of the mods versus rockers kerfuffle in the UK back in the mid-60s. Yeah, we talked about this in chapter 11 of The Big Shoe. So, a lot of the time, it was just a matter of taste. And again, that's legit. Uh, maybe you're a blue jeans and leather jacket type who prefers guitars and live drums to synthesizers and beatboxes. Cocaine just makes you sweaty and agitated. you rather burn a reefer and groove. Fair enough. I met her in a club down in Lotsoho Where you drink champagne and it tastes like Coca-Cola C-O-L-A Cola She walked up to me and she asked me to dance I asked her her name and in a top brown voice she said hello there were darker motivations, though. There was a huge element of homophobia empowering the backlash against disco. We don't want to presume to speak for a community that's not our own, but we were there. We saw it, too. It was fucking awful. And not just casual bigotry from individuals, although there was plenty of that, too. Hatred towards LGBTQ folks was legally codified. It was the default position of the culture. And for some, it was a blood sport. Just seven months before the anti-disco rally at Comiskey Park, the first openly gay elected official in America, San Francisco Supervisor Harvey Milk, was gunned down in his office. Harvey had sponsored one of the nation's first anti-discrimination ordinances, and it passed. The guy who did it uh, also a San Francisco supervisor and a real asshole. We won't even name him. Anyhow, Harvey Milk's murderer got off with a light sentence. He did five years. His defense was basically gay panic made him do it. And the jury bought it. He was convicted of a lesser charge, manslaughter, rather than what it was, stone-cold premeditated murder. In the aftermath of the 1969 Stonewall riots in New York, and we'll get into Stonewall in some detail in one of our main shows, so it's soon, uh, anyway. After Stonewall, gay Americans started becoming more visible. By the late 70s, some small progress towards legal equality was made at the local level in San Francisco, New York, and elsewhere. Baby steps, really, but it was enough to provoke a vicious backlash. According to the word of God, it's an abomination uh, to practice homosexuality. And the same is true for, like, Archbishop Carroll, who took the stand that he would go to jail rather than to uh, hire known homosexuals into their schools. And our pastor said that he would do the same and would even burn the school rather than allow them to be taught by homosexuals. That's the infamous Anita Bryant, a beauty pageant runner-up and C-list celebrity who decided to use her platform to whip up hatred 
of gay Americans. The clip is from 1977. We don't want to say her name again because she's just another asshole of history. So we'll refer to her as Florida Woman. We'll drop a link to the video we picked that off from because the journalist interviewing her, Barbara Hauer, had the courage to actually confront Florida Woman about her hateful nonsense. Sadly, that kind of courage was rare at the time, and it still is. We don't want to spend one more second on Florida Woman. We just brought her up to further our point, thanks to backlash politics, which are as American as baseball. Homophobic bigotry was especially nasty at this point in history. It was in the air. It was going around. It was an ongoing moral panic, something we've talked about before in this podcast. They keep popping up. Something else we've said before about moral panics. They're not always funny. Sometimes real people get hurt. According to census data, Chicago is the seventh most diverse city in the United States. At the same time, Chicago is America's single most racially segregated city. It's odd, but both things can be true. Overall, the Windy City is about one-third black, one-third white, and one-third Hispanic. Like L.A. and New York City, everything that is in America, religions, cultures, nationalities, orientations, everything that is in America is in Chicago. But if you go neighborhood by neighborhood, Chicago is a bunch of tightly segregated racial enclaves bumping up against each other. Many areas on the south side are overwhelmingly black. Other neighborhoods are almost exclusively Hispanic. Out in the western suburbs, It's a lot of vanilla. That explains the city's high segregation index. This was even more pronounced back in the 1970s. Just north of Comiskey Park is Bridgeport, then and now a notoriously insular white neighborhood. (laughs) You gotta pass through Bridgeport to get from Comiskey to downtown and vice versa. Growing up black in 1970 Chicago, early on, Vince Lawrence picked up a piece of neighborhood wisdom. Don't be black in Bridgeport. If you find yourself there, best to keep moving. 17 years of age in 1979, Vince worked as an usher at Comiskey Park. It was a good job for a teenager. Vince enjoyed the games and the atmosphere. Sometimes he'd bag some nice tips, bringing drinks and food to the season ticket holders. Working the turnstiles and disco demolition night, Vince quickly noticed something. Some of the records were most certainly disco albums, but... Most of them were just records by black artists. He saw albums by John Coltrane, James Brown, and Aretha Franklin in the pile. Vince turned and asked his supervisor, Hey, these aren't really disco records. Should I make them go home? Get a real disco record? Vince's boss said, No, if if they brought a record 98 cents, just let them in. In a 2019 interview, Vince continued with the story. (laughs) 
Someone walked up to me and said, hey, you disco sucks, and snapped a 12-inch in half in my face. That's when I started feeling like, okay, they're targeting me because I'm black. I got a loop t-shirt on. What's the difference between me and the next usher trying to get back to his locker? I was one of the few African-American people in the stadium. Steve Dahl said it wasn't discriminatory, but Steve didn't invite no brothers to Kaminsky Park. And that wraps us back around to Steve Dahl. All these years removed from the summer of 79, and he's still saying, look, I was all of 25 years old just trying to do my job, hype the crowd and be funny, maybe sell some tickets and some beer. And he sure the fuck did, and it went off the rails. The event was a giant hit. The joint was packed. We are perfectly willing to believe there was no ill will, no racist intent on Steve Dahl's part. In truth, we don't give a shit about his motives or intentions. They literally don't matter. That's exactly the point Steve keeps running into at full speed, but he still fails to get it. It wasn't the intent, it was the action and its effect. That's what mattered. That's what still matters. If we want to understand the racist effect of Disco Demolition Night, then we should pay attention to two things. One, to the context, which we've laid out in some detail. And two, to the lived experience of a young black man who was actually there. We should ask Vince Lawrence about it. Well, somebody did ask him. Here's Vince's reply. It was a book burning. A racist, homophobic book burning. The night is black without a moon. The air is thick and still. The vigilante. Two centuries ago, in 1820, the German poet Heinrich Heine wrote something that was horrifying in its prophetic accuracy. Where they burn books, they will, in the end, burn human beings too. Put it in some not-quite-so-heavy terms, an entertainer will understand. There's no such thing as a light-hearted, funny book-burning. Throwing other people's art and culture into a bin and exploiting it is just small-minded and mean, and it has the potential to go real fast in a real bad direction. And on July 12, 1979, it did. So, here's our parting shot. A lot of disco music was objectively awful. <laughs> we'll stand by Chic and Donner Summers and a few other acts, and the, the BG Stain Alive is a banger, but most disco songs were absolute dreck. What's more, by 1979, disco was played out as a trend. The bandwagon was sputtering to a halt. Right there in Chicago, at the club level, dance music was already evolving, morphing into what we now call house music. The point here is that disco was a fat, bloated, easy target for satire. An enterprising creative rock DJ could have done something funny and cool with that. Maybe that's what we object to the most. Along with all the unsubtle undertones of racism and homophobia, disco demolition was just hack. It was a disco dud. Here you go. You want to poke fun at disco? We'll leave you with a great non-hack example. Also, 
from 1979. I don't know much about dancing, that's why I got this song. One of my legs is shorter than the other and both of my feet's too long. Of course, now right along with them, I got no natural rhythm. But I go dancing every night, hoping one day I might get it right. I'm a dancing fool. I'm Christian Swain. And I may be totally wrong, but this has been RNRA Shorts on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Keep up the rocking. We'll talk to you soon. Rock and Roll Archaeology is written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson at Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, and links at pantheonpodcast.com. All songs can be found for purchase or streaming wherever you get your great music. Please pick up these amazing tracks. Contact us on social at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.